Church of Christ presents A House for All Sinners and Saints, the sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 3rd, 2019. Give to everyone. Don't retaliate. Treat others the way you want to be treated. When you live this way, you will be whole. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Turn the words of my mouth and the wondering of all our hearts into a doorway to you. For you are surely our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Once upon a time, I was a graduate student working on a degree in American religious history. I'd gotten interested in the Passamaquoddy and Mi'kmaq people of my husband's home state of Maine, and in the Jesuits who came to missionize among them in the 17th century. There were no graduate level classes, either on missionaries or on Native American spirituality, at least at that time at that university. So I signed up for a directed reading with my advisor. Well, it sounded like a great idea at the time, but what that meant was that we created a reading list, and then every other week we met to discuss a new book. For three hours, just the two of us. Just me and the professor and the book lying on the desk between us, with three hours to fill up. Each time the day of the meeting grew closer, I'd start to get anxious, days ahead of time, and I'd go back and I'd reread any parts of the book that seemed the tiniest bit obscure. I'd spend hours poring over the footnotes so I could be sure I understood where in the development of thought this particular author lay, who she or he was quoting, either to agree or disagree. And then the fateful day would come, and I would wake up, and the part of my brain that controlled everything beyond breath would feel frozen. Three hours, just the professor, who I revered and had on a pedestal, and me for three hours. How will I survive it? What if my mind stays this blank? There will be no place to hide. I know nothing. I remember nothing. I have not one coherent response to this book. I have no idea what the author's goal was in writing it. I know nothing, I understand nothing, and I have nothing to say for myself. I drag myself into the room, feeling as if I was going to certain doom and humiliation, and outing as the biggest fraud who had ever walked the halls of academe. And my professor, John Corrigan, would just sit there serenely behind his desk. He'd smile quietly. He had a great stillness of body and peacefulness of spirit. And so he would just sit quietly, and wait until the super-caffeinated, anxious energy I had brought with me into the room subsided. And then he'd ask the first question, and we'd be off. And before I blinked, three hours had passed, as if no time were happening at all. 
Every single time I went to that room, I went in terrified. And every time I came out of that room, I came out like a whole different person. Unselfconscious, joyful, free. Now, a cynical person might suggest that I was merely relieved to be done for that week. And that might be a small part of it, but only the very smallest part. I thought then, and I think now, that what happened in that room was a healing of sorts. Now, the very much still living John Corrigan would probably be mortified to hear me say it, but he was a saint in my life. The deep courtesy he offered me was a kind of compassion. He was so simply himself, clear and calm and brilliant that he created a space in which I could be simply myself, curious, eager, interested, and joyful. He gave me the spiritual gift of a pathway to self-forgetting. We often in the Christian tradition think that this means self-dislike, but it's nothing of the sort. What we are called to is to forget all about ourselves. And this is the gift that John Corrigan gave me. Literally a chance to be so immersed in being myself that I forgot to think about myself. Thomas Merton wrote a book, wrote at the beginning of his classic book, The Seeds of Contemplation, a tree imitates God by being a tree. You imitate God by being you. Now, of course, this is much, much easier for a tree than for a human being, because as far as we know, trees don't have anything like as many choices as we have. And as far as we know, they don't have the self-consciousness that we, we have and the crippling self-doubt that goes with it. They simply are. But there are people who have the gift of living in such an integrated way that the spirit that is within them is free to imitate God by being simply themselves, human and humanly made in the image of the same good God who filled up Jesus's being. The saintliness that I saw in my old professor had nothing to do with religion or martyrdom or even what we usually think of and talk about as holiness or goodness. But from what I saw of his life, he did live in a holy way, a set-apart way. What I saw of his life as a scholar and a teacher and among his colleagues was a life of compassionately extending himself for other people while remaining himself. He did not live by the rules of quid pro quo on the one hand and retaliation on the other that generally characterize our culture. He was simply available as himself to other people. It is the same quid pro quo culture, the same transactional culture, that he somehow miraculously sidestepped, that Jesus was talking about, I think, in today's reading from the Gospel of Luke. This familiar passage is what some people consider the central teaching of Jesus. It has a more familiar 
version in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and here in Luke, it is the Sermon on the Plain. They have differences characteristic of the Gospels that they come from. Luke's version of the Beatitudes, in Luke's version, Jesus makes a declaration of blessedness that upends our usual expectation of who is, in fact, leading a blessed life. In Luke's version, it is the poor, the hungry, the crying, those who are hated or ostracized, who are marked as blessed. Now, a word about the word blessed. It has been so overused in our culture to the point of banality. Those of us who are on Facebook and Instagram or any other social media are quite used to seeing pictures of people doing beautiful things in impossibly beautiful places, playing with their beautiful children in their beautiful homes or on their beautiful boats. And underneath is the one word caption, hashtag blessed. The ultimate humble brag. I have so much, but it wasn't me, it was God. What they really mean is hashtag privileged. Because that word is so complicated in our current climate, I'd like to think about other ways to translate it. Some have translated it as happy, but as New Testament scholar Matt Skinner has pointed out, happy has become too small a word in our common usage. It means something bright and shallow and ephemeral. Skinner suggests instead that by blessed, instead of blessed or happy, we read unburdened or satisfied. Those who are hungry, weeping, and poor will be satisfied. They are even now beginning to be unburdened. Unlike Matthew, who both shifts the focus of the Beatitudes towards something more spiritualized and less about actual poverty, Luke keeps his brief and focused on people's material lives of either poverty or plenty. And then he makes a move that Matthew leaves out altogether. He contrasts those who are satisfied with those who should watch out. Woe to you who are wealthy and satiated, to you who are laughing and acclaimed. Well, standing as I am, happy, in the middle of my well-fed and by world standards quite wealthy life, this does not sound like very good news to me. Those woes are a sharp contrast to the makarios, or satisfied, or blessed. But the Greek word which we translate woe does not mean cursed or unhappy. It is not an equal and opposite state. And it most certainly does not mean what we have often understood it to mean, damned. We often have read these verses to mean, you'll go to heaven later if you're poor now. You'll go to the bad place if you're rich now. Instead of that, instead of all of that woe conjures up for us, hear it instead as yikes or watch out. The kind of woe you might say to a horse that's following its own lead and heading over a cliff. Blessed are you, Jesus says, and watch out over there, he says. Watch out because you are living in all your abundance amidst people who are suffering. 
and your abundance makes you unable to even see them. And he continues, I say to you that, listen, when you are caught up in a world that is unfair, love, bless, do not retaliate, give freely. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus is inviting his disciples, and by extension, every one of us, to enter into a community whose ethos is entirely different from the quid pro quo that is so much a part of human culture, both then and now, that it seems almost as natural as drawing breath. We expect to give and receive in return. It feels right to us and moral and good. Most of us don't like to be on either end of an equation that has become unbalanced. How many of us have been to a new friend's home for dinner and as soon as we arrived back at our own house, started looking for dates when we could reciprocate? Maybe that's purely because the evening was a success and we want to continue a conversation that was interesting and nourishing, but also, partly, now it's our turn and we want to pay back. I know for many of us, it is a learned grace to be able to say merely, thank you, when someone has done a favor for us. Something as simple as bringing in the mail when we're away, or walking the dog when we are down with the flu, can make us feel, instead of grateful, beholden. We feel much better after we find a way to reciprocate. We feel more relaxed. It feels balanced. And there's more. When someone harms us, Jesus says, don't retaliate. That sounds very noble. Until you, or even worse, someone that you love, is the one being hit. When my boys were in high school, they were lacrosse players. Now, they both played attack which means it was their job to carry the ball on the offensive end of the field and to shoot goals, which also meant that they were the target of the deep holes who were trying to get the ball away from them. A deep hole is a defensive player, usually very large, very fast, and always armed with a special six-foot-long lacrosse stick with which he is allowed to check the attackman, that is, smack him. Now that was very hard for me as a mama to watch. I didn't like it. I didn't like watching my babies getting repeatedly whacked with a six foot pole. But they were proud of their bruises, so I learned to accept it. But one day, when the Liberty Falcons were playing their rival Glencoe Crimson Tide, Caleb had received the ball behind the net. This is where he liked to play. I don't know if you've seen a lacrosse field, but there's a lot of playing space behind the net and Caleb would lurk there, and then he'd wrap around and score. He was a good player, and one of the things that made him good was that he had an uncanny field sense, a sense of where all of the other players were at all times. On this occasion, he was wrapping around the goal, and his whole focus was on two things, dodging the deep hole behind him and the opening of the goal. There was a flag down at the other end of the field. He knew that. What he didn't know was that in a gross display of unsportsmanlike conduct, 
One of the Glencoe attackmen shrugged as if to say, flags down already, might as well go off sides too. And that boy pelted the entire length of the field and smashed my son from the side in a check so hard and illegal that the stands went silent. And Caleb flew straight up into the air and straight down. And then he stayed there. I was frozen, terrified, and I was also murderously angry at that Glencoe kid. I'm still a little angry, and it's been years. For the long seconds that my kid was on the ground, I wanted to wring his cowardly neck. But Caleb popped back up, said something to his opponent, and trotted off to resume playing. Wow, I thought, we've raised a remarkable young man, so restrained, so sportsmanlike. What I found out later was that what he said to the other player was simply, Scoreboard. Liberty was ahead, and the shot he got off just before he was hit went in, so he wasn't so much noble as gloating. <laughs> now that is a very small and a rather silly example, but it opened up for me a window into my own deep desire for retaliation, for vengeance even. It's not far beneath the surface. This part of the story is difficult, and it's also troubling, because these words, turn the other cheek, don't retaliate, when taken out of context, have been used over and over again against people who are suffering, either under economic exploitation or, in particular, women who are suffering domestic violence. And about that, I can only say that turning away without retaliating is not the same thing as staying put. One can turn away and walk away. Jesus is calling us into a new community, the communion of saints, a community set apart by an odd new social reality with values that don't match the life experience of many of us, our experience of who is happy and how. The values of the community of saints don't conform to the cold logic of quid pro quo and cost-benefit analysis and what's in it for me. Jesus calls us to a community where God's generosity is mirrored by every member, where all are fed and sustained and offered mercy. Everyone is welcomed, each one treating others as they want to be treated in a web of generosity and plenty, not counting and keeping tabs on the quid pro quo, but giving. This kind of giving is only possible when you are rooted and grounded in knowing that you are loved. Jesus calls the church to more than acting differently or seeing the world differently. He calls us almost into a new existence in which God's generosity benefits the downtrodden. The generosity creates a culture formed and sustained by the mercy of God. And watch out to those who are missing opportunities to experience tangibly the giving and receiving of mercy. Watch out. Don't go that way. Come in instead.
Rich, satiated, carefree, and respectable people can, of course, share immediately in the new existence God has instituted, but only to the degree to which they participate in Christ's calling, to the, de the degree that they enter into solidarity with those who find themselves destitute, underfed, mournful, and vilified. We belong to each other, and there is enough. As Paul put it, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love, and so filled up with all the fullness of God that you overflow. You will overflow with compassion, with dedication to comfort and justice for the suffering. From that fullness, you can greet other human beings, no matter who they are, with compassion. You can, like my old professor did, see them as whole and offer your whole self as companion to their whole self, satisfied and sustained. Listen, listen.